This is Paul Moon, director of the documentary Samuel Barber, Absolute Beauty, and you're listening to the first episode of what might become a sort of occasional podcast series in the film's afterlife. I thought I'd call it Capricorn Conversations, to be focusing on some more American composers who were connected to that era of American music, who somehow maybe managed at one point or another to congregate at that Capricorn house in Mount Kisco, New York, where Barbara and Minotti lived. I'm sitting here at the Wintergreen Music Festival in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia with renowned composer Darren Hagen, who is the co-chair of composition here each summer, and he has a new memoir called Duet with the Past that he read from this week at the festival. Darren, thanks for taking the time to share. Thank you, Paul. So launching into a kind of huge question that could be passed over quickly because it is that type of question. I mean, it's a common topic of discussion. Some say that tonal music somehow went out of fashion last century when Barber was at his peak. And academic 12-tone music dominated if composers wanted to stay relevant. So what do you make of this claim? I mean, and taking us really to the present where you're continuing to compose great music, um, have things changed? Is there an arc of history to look at? Or is this kind of a lot of musicological chatter? Oh, I love the phrase musicological chatter. Uh, I suppose I'm going to add my chatter to the to the void. I think, first of all, it's great to be here, and it's great to be able to say a few words uh, along these lines. Uh, relevant to whom is the first question. We define our terms. Uh, Samuel Barber's music, of course, lands, but it lands with exactly the people he wanted it to land with, which it was not a general audience, but uh, and, uh, a well-educated, well-heeled, upper-middle-class audience. Uh, he, therefore, by his own definition, he succeeded in speaking to his chosen audience. It seems to me, for what it's worth, and not because I attended Curtis, but because of my orientation to that generation, my mentors were uh, Ned Roram and Lucas Foss and David Diamond, uh, and Lenny Bernstein, uh, th that it, what happened to Barber, though unfortunate, was inevitable historically, because in reality, the first generation of American composers were those 40s Americana slash nationalist symphonists <clears throat> like Mr. Barber and, and Diamond and and Lenny, and Harris, and Piston, and William Schumann, the whole bunch of them who, who made a little clubhouse together called Lincoln Center, they had all the work. So when the next generation of composers came along, they had a choice. They could either compete with Aaron Copland and Samuel Barber for commissions, or they could look somewhere else for a living with which to pay their mortgages and raise their children and pay their taxes while they composed. Modernism was inevitable. And that was when all of these tenure track positions in composition opened up around the country and they all got jobs teaching. So of course, when you, this is a terrible thing to say, and I don't mean it to aggravate and annoy and alienate my, my academic colleagues. My wife is an academic and a composer. Um, and I, of course, have taught for many years in various schools. But when you teach a composer how to compose and what you do most of the time is teach, what you're doing is you're teaching them how to teach, which is great. But you're not teaching them how to write symphonic music for the kind of audience that wants to go to symphony concerts. So what we got was an entire generation who, who they were simply competing with Mr. Barber for slots on concerts. Uh, but since they were shut out, they said, okay, fine, we cede the field to you. We're going to write speculative music. We're going to write music that's performed on college campuses and huge chamber pieces that can be given six weeks of rehearsal time rather than a large orchestra piece that will of 20 minutes that gets 40 minutes of rehearsal time and then it's it's out there thrust into the world it does sound like a more peaceful explanation than i've ever heard because it sounds like it also refers to the barriers to entry that have since eroded more than ever before because of the ways that people can consume music now I think you're absolutely right, Paul. I mean, it, it's it's gentler because time 
has passed and we're on the other side of it now. Yes, uh, we've already, during the 80s, we were already in that churn of coming back and rediscovering Mr. Barber. And when I was in school at Curtis, uh, I remember a wonderful lunch with, with Giancarlo Menotti. And he was in the process when I, when I was working for him as a copyist of being absolutely crucified in the New York Times and other uh, papers for being who he was. And he, he expressed a lot of deep wisdom about that, and he was in the thick of it. He said, Caro, this is the way that it is when you get older. Time moves on. People have to define themselves against you. Well, let's talk about Giancarlo Minotti. I'd love to, because um, I think from what I can tell, you're a little more acquainted with his music than with Barber's, at least directly, in terms of being able to talk to the Oh, fellow. no, I'm intimately acquainted with both. Both. You can't go to Curtis and not be immersed in Mr. Barber. And, and then, Barber. and then, as it turns out, even <laughs> if it wasn't uh, meant to be, I think one can't talk about one without the other. So yes. starting with Minotti, practically, uh, first question is going to be, when did you first hear his music? I first heard... Giancarlo Menotti's music when I was in junior high school, a production of The Medium. I remember seeing that in the book and mentioning that to you when I first met you because that was the first opera I ever heard, too. And a good one to start with. Yeah, I will never forget. Mother, mother, are you there? If you can write four notes like that, that's, that's just as effective as an operatic stroke, as, you know, hip-hop, hip-hop at the end of Wozzeck. If you can do that, you get to play. Uh, and I was fortunate as an undergraduate at Curtis to be taken to lunch several times by Mr. Minotti and to have a couple of lessons with him. And he was unflaggingly graceful and erudite and charming and, uh, and very wise. He had taken a lot of hits. He'd raised a lot of money for other people's music. And that level of generosity was characteristic in him the way that it was with Bernstein. So he doesn't seem to be sort of receiving the rewards that maybe were due in terms of his legacy, but time will tell. You know, I think his music is certainly going to survive, but let's talk about that survival. Mm. Um, is it a liability that he was also, um, and this will, of course, lead up to Bernstein, we can talk later, uh, when you put on, when you use venues like Broadway to... And it's it, first of all, I guess I have to pause and say it's sort of amazing how our culture has turned where the idea of doing an opera on Broadway anymore feels like something impossible, even though I think it happens from time to time. Well, now we have Papyrus. Yeah. We have Frank Wildhorn. Which and... maybe would make these fellows turn over in their graves, I'm not sure. But John Carlo Minotti did yeah. um, premiere some major works. Of that. He also did children's operas, which was an important um, part of his repertoire that also was never fully tested as a medium that would bring young people into classical music, which of mm -hmm. course is the great challenge today. So I'm, th I'm kind of rambling about all these ways that maybe were liabilities about Minotti, but um, I think that he doesn't have any shortage of productions compared to struggling composers mm -hmm. who weren't in that club as you describe. But um, tell me about where you see his work, and I'd love to hear you actually just throw out some of your favorites and talk about his, his works that really appeal to you. I'd be delighted to. In order to place any comment that I make in, in a historical context, because I know that that's our, our portfolio here, there was a dream, and there remains a dream in American high culture, so-called high culture music, lyric theater. Uh, what Giancarlo called per verdi parola scenica, right? Through written drama. And the American dream for these composers, whether it was Bernstein or Menotti or Barber, was that, that the music should fall between the bar stools of concert music for the elites and pop music for for the non-elites, I suppose. It's a very short step from Victor Herbert's operettas, which were all written for Broadway, to Menotti, and from Menotti to Richard Strauss. Certainly Korngold is close to Menotti. And at that time, the heirs to that tradition, Bernstein, 
Mark Blitzstein, of course. We think of The Cradle Will Rock. The most important moment in American lyric theater was the travesty, the glorious travesty that was the non-premiere of The Cradle Will Rock because it cut to the essence of the American dream of what American lyric theater could and can be and still aspires to. And yet, almost all critics of music theater go after it. The people who are MT, music theater self-appointed aficionados, they think that opera composers are writing down to them. And opera, so-called opera, opera aficionados feel that the music theater composers are writing up to them. And so if you actually, as I do, write in that middle spot, and as Menotti did those last years, and as Lenny did all his career, and as, Men uh, as I said, you lose both ways. On the other hand, those are the pieces that last. A piece like Candide, in all its many forms, is living theater that keeps on being revived. You can have whatever attitude you want, and most people who are on the inside who compose lyric theater have an attitude because their piece is or is not getting done. And, and I'm going to say one last thing. I know you wanted me to talk about Minotti. Medium landed with a bunch of 11 to 15-year-olds in, in a junior high school auditorium in Wisconsin in the 1970s. It landed. We were involved, not because education was better then, but because the Florentine Opera sent a bunch of 20-something singers out with a piano and did it on a bare stage and scared the dickens out of us. That's how it's done. And that's what, Barb, that's what Barbara Minotti could do. And it was the kind of music that could have sent some of the matinee ladies out the door. It was contemporary music. And when you hear Minotti's music, and particularly that piece that ran, that, that you know, leaned a little darker, there's a lot of chromaticism in that piece. There is, and it's post, it's post Puccini. But remember, there's a lot of Stravinsky and Puccini, but Puccini would put ice cream on it. The, when you look at last summer, for example, the console was produced up at Opera Saratoga by Lawrence Adelson, who is a terrific director and producer. And I brought my then seven-year-old to it. And when the old woman puts her head in the oven at the end of the opera and kills herself because of that she's trapped in a fascist totalitarian state, my seven-year-old was on the edge of his seat. Not because he's a strange son of a composer, but because it's gripping so drama is just the maybe the what the ultimate high you know when it comes to a composer's oeuvre right maybe and then that's to get more personal that's mm -hmm. something that i'm always interested in because it seems like some composers sort of arrive at a point in their trajectory that you seem to have arrived at yourself where they might be known most for their dramatic works so you have written operas in addition to what we could call pure music. It's such a funny term, pure music. It sounds so, I don't know, puerile, actually. But, you know, <laughs> and, and sort so, of unappealing. Yeah, <laughs> right. Boring, bound by rules and sonata forms and so on. But um, it's interesting if you never meant to get there. It's also interesting if you only find yourself wanting at a certain point to write dramatic music. It's also interesting just to not only personalize it for yourself, but also, you know, when we get back to Minotti's, mm -hmm. if you will, curse, um, uh, he, he is certainly best known for his operas, and yet there is wonderful music. In your book, you write about Sebastian in a particularly... Oh, you know, and he's got a triple concerto a tre, yes. So let's talk charming. about that. How, how do you deal with, you know, your one suitcase of... Uh, of concert music and your other suitcase of dramatic music and, and, and where you see yourself? Is it just one on each arm? Uh, Virgil Thompson famously said uh, that the, the professional deformity of uh, opera composers is that that's where the money is for a composer. He, he was quite uh, deft at tracking back the way that a composer wrote music to where they got their money, which is awfully vulgar, but also very interesting. 
And I think of Korngold running away from the Nazis and writing film scores, you know. <laughs> right. And he, he, you know, it, it, it's not a matter of having sold his soul. He was already world famous at the age of 16, Die Tote Stadt. You know, I mean, once you've done that, it's very hard to, to look down. It's like Orson Welles. Where do you go after you've achieved everything? Or, or Vita Perón, where do you go when there's nowhere to go but, but to fall to pieces? When it comes to someone like uh, an opera composer, I think of myself primarily as an opera composer only because, uh, as Jesse James said about banks, that's where the money is. Why do you rob banks? Well, I write operas because that's where they, they use voices, stories, narratives, and orchestras, and so forth. And I love to collaborate. Words, music, collaboration. Once you have those three things, you've got all of the ingredients of, of lyric theater. And as you can see from the answer I gave to the question of, you know, the three bar stools, I guess I'm quixotic in as much as I believe and I believed as a child. I got into this. You said, did you slide into this? Did you go into a door and find that that's what you were good at? Well, I got into composing because of seeing the medium and because of uh, a production of of Blitzstein's Regina that my brother was in. And first and foremost, because of Benjamin Britten's opera, Billy Budd, which my brother, who had been an opera singer, was playing one day in, on his record player in college. And uh, it just seemed to me that these were real people speaking from the gut and that that's what we should all aspire to, that level of honesty. Now, it doesn't matter, of course, whether Benjamin Britten was a, a, a nasty man or not. It doesn't matter whether Minotti or Mr. Barber were bad men. But when they were on the field, they left nothing there. They gave everything and they connected and they landed. Uh, the, the other, everything else is just practicalities. The, the, people who write operas and ballets tend to do so because they don't want to have teaching jobs. And that's where the licensing is. Sure. Um, you mentioned Barbara and Minotti vis-a-vis, you know, so that is something I hope to explore just a little because um, I remember in my own process of sort of mining the the biographies of Barbara and then by association Minotti, the risk of going too far into something that distracts from their music mm -hmm. essentially. But it does interest me that, that there is a, postulate perhaps that there was a rivalry um not an expressed rivalry but maybe well, between more, mr barber and mr Minotti. sure and therefore it's not necessarily something about personal matters but more about sort of the interesting drama of two composers sort of butting heads um well it's you know, funny you should ask me that Paul, well, because i'm go. married to a composer myself it's it's a loaded <laughs> question and, and actually i mean i i, I formulate the question essentially saying that I like the idea of two brilliant composers cohabitating. Um, but this was an example of one that didn't sort of work out. So you pull it off beautifully with your wife. In fact, you introduced me to her proudly as a composer mm -hmm. in residence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what does this come down to? Does it come down to personality, um, levels of accomplishment? Or is there some middle place like compromise where two brilliant creative minds sort of can or cannot cohabitate? Oh, that's, that's the question, of course. You cut to the nub of, if anything from our colloquy here uh, matters to me in the end, it's the paragraph that ensues. And that is that music is the MacGuffin. The fact that my wife makes music and that I make music is terrific. It's how we spend our time. But in, in Hitchcock, in dramaturgy, and the MacGuffin is that set of keys in The Man Who Knew Too Much. Everyone's looking for that set of lost keys. The keys in themselves don't mean anything. But it is in the searching that all the characters define themselves, not just against the keys, but against one another and against the context and within the context. Music does that for us as musicians, all of us as musicians. We step outside of ourselves to become vessels in order to intensify and facilitate the MacGuffin role that music plays. For us to ever aspire to or presume ownership, stewardship, or 
even understanding of what music is. We can teach it, we can share it, we can, most of all, we can facilitate its performance and creation, but it's not ours. What is ours, barely, is our lives. And for me, the, the only way I was able to come out into the second half of my life was to understand that that is my personal truth and that, that there is no way that I am going to put anyone else's safety or self-actuation at risk for the sake of my own as an artist. Because art is art, life is life, life is art, art is life. And it's all about the process of trying to make that happen. Now, that is, okay, paragraph break, second paragraph and the point of all of that. I believe it's not a matter of the ego. I believe that it is a matter of, I, we can't step into Mr. Manotti. We can't go, step into Capricorn and understand the nature of the relationships. But I suspect it was simply that they couldn't live together anymore. And that's okay. People do that. And I don't think it had anything to do with their relationship as musicians and as collaborators and as artists. I think it, it was just easier not to live together anymore. It's interesting, though, that you almost, you know, in a sort of therapeutic gesture, really silo personality with this musical expression and art. Yes, sir. Which, which is very pragmatic as a, as a, as a tool. <laughs> Coping but, mechanism. <laughs> yes. But from the other side of this, you know, from the non-composer looking into that world of creation, um, we do grasp for clues as to why music sounds the way it does comparing personalities. So, you know, Barber, what, what, what fascinates me about Barber is the very interior quality of his music and the way that he was known as a personality to be that sort of small town Westchester kid, you know, who was very insular, um, loved his family, all of these things that were maybe the, if you will, opposite of the sort of Italian um, uh, personality, grand personality of Minotti. Who I understand what you're Festival. saying. Yes, yeah. I think that the, I think when I compare and contrast the two, and now we come to the dessert part of the conversation, um, you, you can compare and contrast the Barber Violin Concerto and the Minotti Violin Concerto. I think this is easier than the, the operas because the operas are such collaborations that they really are the children of these two men. But those concerti, the barber is, is upper middle class, remorseful, elegant, exquisite. It personifies the, the, what used to be the Curtis Institute of Music's aesthetic. And, the, uh, and I thought it was a very beautiful historic opportunity for me as a, as a young man to see Joseph Silverstein play the Minotti Concerto at, with the, uh, the Curtis Orchestra when I was a student and Minotti was there. Because the Minotti Concerto is <laughs> all over joyous, the map. It's, it's joyous <laughs> and, and bubbling and, and referential and it's a, it's a mess. Parts of it are a hot mess. And that's great. And I suspect that's what, what I, I'm just completely conjecturing. You, you would know far more than me that, that that's what Mr. Barber loved about Minotti. But also when you love that about somebody, it's also something that drives you up the wall about them. And alcohol and, and, and careers aside, um, when you examine those two pieces, I think that, that that is the closest in their two oeuvres that I can come to two pieces that if you listen to them back to back, you probably had a conversation with two gentlemen and you can you have a pretty good insight into their differences. That's a great, I never thought of that because I guess on the surface, I mean, you get the best um, analysis when you have two level, two things on a level playing field. And there, I think on first listen, you might say, eh, kind of similar, you know, tonal music, violin concerto and so on. But I'm getting what you're saying. There's such sort of optimism and joy and, and humanism in Minotti's violin concerto. Barber goes all over the place, doesn't it? I mean, in the, in the documentary, I explore the way that actually that, that problematic last movement is sort of a wartime movement. It has to do with the circumstances of running away from the Nazis and having to finish his commission in time for Eugene Normandy and all this. Um, 
but it's it's certainly and dives. of course there's that great story of the the, the you know saying it's unplayable and a Curtis student totally, comes down and plays it totally so. debunked yeah. but still perpetuated <laughs> badly in program notes around the world um, but yeah for sure I think what drew me to that piece in particular was it's it's deep that big word melancholy you know it, it does go 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 to that place and, and that of course place, Barbara was such a melancholic. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that. Well, I only I only met him once near the end, and he already was succumbing to the leukemia, uh, and uh, he uh, he was professionally uh, polite, but not particularly kind, and I think that it requires energy uh, and hope to be kind, or it requires the ability to have transcended your your circumstances, and he was in, obviously in pain. And I was uh, brought to his home by a, a violinist who was playing his concerto, and um, I was playing the piano. And I said, you know, I'm a composer too. And, you know, a look of just such ennui passed across his face when he heard the word composer. So it was not a time to have met him. Uh, but I but I knew Minotti as, as, a, as a teacher and as an employer. And then as somebody I would speak to on the phone every now and then. And it was very clear that, yes, he, Barbara was inich, inich at that point. But the I, have to, I have to interject. I mean, there's a funny story. I'm wondering if this violinist was Robert McDuffie. Um, no, it wasn't. And it should have been. Yeah. Uh, by all rights, it should there have were, been. There were, new, there were several such visits sort of to yeah. his, I hate to use the word deathbed, but as he was suffering or on his decline. Well, there's one little anecdote where Robert McDuffie, Robert McDuffie tells this when he tours with some pieces by Barber. One of them is that he showed up on such an occasion where he was introduced as a, a award-winning, you know, bright young star from Juilliard. And that all, again, just like you said, the sort of, oh no. <laughs> but what made it even worse was for Duffy and also for everybody, actually, was that Barber said, just please, I will allow this. But please assure me that they won't play the adagio for strings oh. as some sort of funereal piece because that sort of dogged him. Of course, that's the, the classic, you know, Ravel's Bolero curse of a composer that you don't want to be known for this one. Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. Okay. The same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's, again, I'm trying to draw the, draw the, uh, the screen back and, and have a wide shot again historically. Um, I think that, again, Mr. Barber was unfortunately one of the standard bearers of a sort of music that was being worked passionately against by the younger generation. There's a very famous story of Copeland coming backstage at Avery Fisher when, when Bernstein premiered, I believe it was Connotations. And Copeland had always been beloved of the young composers. He'd always been supportive of them. He'd been enabling them, bringing them along. He'd been one of their heroes. And all of a sudden, there were no young composers backstage. And and Lenny told me the story. He said, Aaron looked so bereft. He said, where are all the young composers? And that that is a, a rite of passage for a composer when you grow up. That and bad reviews. When critics start going after you, you know you're doing something right. Because first of all, they feel as though you're enough of a, an artistic entity that, that you deserve to be <sighs> thrown vegetables at. And the second is when you see a, enough years, I've been at this now 45 years, and my first published pieces were when I was 16, 17 years old. And so when I coached those pieces, I remember that boy. And I remember what the music world was like then. And we now live in a time of such profound social flux and social activism and social engineering in the music business that for me to be um, enthralled by what's happening would be for me, without being disrespectful of Mr. Barber's memory, for me to go down the road that I think that he was on. On the one hand, he had created <laughs> the best track record of a catalog of any American composer. You know, there are no stinkers in his catalog. Now, come on. <laughs> That's amazing. Nonpareil. A lot of stinkers in Minotti's catalog. He knew it. You know, he, oh, he would always tell me, I want to retire so I can fix them. No, he had no intention of cleaning up the, the room 
it's, after it's the equivalent today of a rapper taking a mic and just throwing it down on the stage because he sort of he would nail oh. he would nail each genre and then he would say okay i did it and then so there's there's not a violin concerto number two there's not a cello concerto number two why would there be <laughs> you know once you've done it yeah it's a mic drop they are mic drop pieces but he unfortunately lived long enough to see the next wave breaking and some people can back off and they can say okay boys girls enjoy but i don't he was enthralled for some reason and there and i'm not saying that he was not wise but i think that in order to to have a really great second act and i desperately am working on my second act as a as an artist you have to come to terms with the fact that 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 that, that the business moves on the business does the business is youth related it's novelty related it's wunderkind still wunderkind related and it has things that it is doing based on what's going on in society that may or may not benefit you at any given time. And I know this because I see it happen. And I sat on the juries and the foundation panels that helped make this environment come into being. And I'm proud of that. But just because you helped make it happen doesn't make it easier when you're when you personally are passed over in your late 50s or 60s for a commission because somebody whose career you helped when you were in your 30s and 40s is now getting the work because they are the flavor of the decade and that's important and it's parenting and that's an acknowledgement that music is a river we have a little teacup we dip our little teacup into the river. Mr. Barber, he had, I think, a crystal goblet <laughs> and, and reached out. And I'm not in any way trivializing his achievement or saying that it was easy for him. But some people, some people dive in the river and flop around and, and that's their way of living. And I think that that's wonderful. Hot messes are great. The Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue is a, is a mess and, and it's genius. Uh, but also this, the Barber Violin Concerto couldn't be further away from Rhapsody in Blue. And it is a work of genius, too. Well, I, so we're at a spot where we could address something that I thought I'd ask you about. But I also think that it's a, this, occasions like this are a good opportunity to keep adding to the historical record mm. and maybe debunk some myths. Because I think, you know, and I even when I tried to develop a narrative arc to the documentary, even as slight as that was, um, it was inevitable to say that Barber's decline was triggered by the mm. mess, the hot mess of Antony and Cleopatra. It's interesting. I mean, it's just, we're a month away. We're a month away from yeah. Zeffirelli passing, when that has also shouldered the blame, and he deserved a lot of the blame for I think the problems with Antony and Cleopatra. But you know, you've said things just now that complicate this narrative about um, Barber's so-called decline. He still wrote great music. We have Absolutely. lots of wonderful pieces, The Lovers and many songs and so on. But, you know, I'll interject, I'll add here too, that you know, David Patrick Stearns, the Philadelphia Inquirer classical critic, in, in a private conversation, he was, and he, and he actually wrote this publicly when he was dealing with the documentary, he was saying that people often overlook one other ingredient that, you know, this is a subject we can either dive into to some extent or just pass over safely. Um, sail past, you know, <laughs> beside, besides stormy waters. But well, now my interest is peaked. <laughs> oh no! Well, it's, uh, it could be personal, or you could not make it personal. But he describes alcoholism as being an overlooked ingredient ah. to Barber's decline. We know that he died of melanoma, but into that last part of his life, mm -hmm. you have about ten years where he's despairing over the loss of Minotti. Um, he's dealing with the things you described. Of, you know, where are the composition students anymore? The adoration's gone. Antony and Cleopatra was a mess. You got in a boat and just escaped to Italy and so on. Um, but alcoholism. What's going on here? Why do composers do this? Well, uh, to first start general and be flippant, uh, somebody asked Eugene O'Neill why writers, so many writers were alcoholics, and he said because the hours are good. We'll just let that land wherever you want to let it land. Well, I am an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic and I've been sober for about six years uh, it, and uh, I I'm not proud of that fact it's just a, it's an artifact in my personal narrative uh, I think that recovery is important I think that alcoholism in Samuel Barber's uh, career uh, probably plays as important a role as it does in any career I think that that 
alcohol was where he got to be messy and not be the uptight mainline Philadelphia gentleman that he uh, was in his art. Uh, personally, I know that if I had continued drinking, I would have been dead. I would have died within a year or two. And I certainly, as memories filter back of things that I said and did when I was high, uh, the hardest part of recovery is when those, those fragmentary memories return and you realize what you said and did that are not you and you're not that man and they're not that you would never have said them if you had been sober i believe those things collect up and uh i don't think that it can be overstated what a role alcohol alcoholism played in mr barber's life but but you know who knows i mean everybody's different i think that that sure i mean having a flop at the met stinks um, but he had also written another pretty good opera, and this was a return. And Zeffirelli, everyone knows that Zeffirelli overproduced Antony and Cleopatra, and the Met always does that. And every large opera house likes docile, agreeable composers because the opera house is built as a mechanism to to ideally from the time of the great Italians like Verdi or, or Puccini or, or the great Germans like Wagner to sit on the shoulders of the vision of a great man and to execute that vision and to enhance it. But absent great visionaries uh, of the type that existed and were in, 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 encouraged at the time that, that that power structure was created, the power structure is still there. And so the power structure is bureaucracy of incredibly talented designers and directors and, and performers who are more than happy to step up. Uh, in the opera world, we call this spraying Febreze on the opera. And, and any opera is a hit when it is premiered because everybody steps up. If, the, if a scene is weak, they do something in the setting. It, 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 it's such a magnificent mechanism that a lot of first-time opera composers think they've written a hit when in fact what they've done is they've enabled the, the, the exquisite mechanism that is a great company to do what it does the best. And so we've come to a period in American opera where mediocre opera composers are prized because they do what they're told. And it's more, anyway, it's a terrible thing that I just said, but it's, it's inevitable that I should be a little bit catty at some point during this conversation. But but if, going back to the, the alcoholism thing, I think to dismiss or not engage with that, uh, that chemical relationship that he had uh, is to, to be as missing of the point as to engage with Leonard Bernstein's musical career and not acknowledge that he was bisexual. Well, I wondered whether alcoholism was a way to navigate what I thought might be partly an explanation or as you say sort of medication for this melancholy strain that typifies great music i think i mean in other words i think some of our most memorable there's a sort of strange vulture-like quality of audience composer relationship where audiences love to smell blood they love oh. to feel like you suffered in some way and so alcoholism seems to me compared even to other drugs it is a particularly expedient fuel of self-destruction. And the self-destructive quality, it almost seems as though composers are sort of, in a, in a messianic sense, are sort of duty-bound to destroy themselves for the sake of the audience. This is getting operatic, but is this kind of what's going on here? Well, it's a lovely narrative. And it's the everyone, everyone on the other side of the footlights wants to understand why we call it playing. And we're all working very hard to make it look like we're playing. But being an artist is a job like any other job. And we, like, we create, we construct a Bible. We construct a narrative for those things that we don't understand. And we want to, we want to worship and raise up the creative artist at the same time that we want to push them down. 
because they must be having more fun than we are at some level. So if they're self-destructive, well, that's just the price they pay for being the overgrown children that they allow themselves to be. This is all, this is all ridiculous, of course. Uh, and you don't, if you want to be a great saxophone player like Coltrane, you don't become a heroin addict. If you want to be a great blues singer like Amy Winehouse or Billie Holiday, you don't become a heroin addict. You practice and you write. And the, the fact of the matter is, one of the things that I learned from Ned Roram, talk about the, a, a barber legacy, is that uh, great artists get their work done. It's as simple as that. And uh, Ned was an alcoholic and stopped drinking. And his music either was or was not better after he stopped drinking. Certainly he had a longer career and at 93, he's still here. And if he had continued to drink, he would not be here. Now you have to ask yourself, this whole romantic idea of immolating yourself on the set of keys, why would you give your life to find that set of keys that was the MacGuffin? It's just a set of keys. I'm, I'm, see, I'm, I'm always a teacher. I'm always trying to bring the lecture yeah, back to the is, beginning. This is, this is, this is interesting because it, I, I think of the, a lot of the tissue or how do I say the skeleton of understanding Barber dates back to his fond letters between his uncle, Sidney Homer, where you see these lessons. I mean, you just talk, talked about tautology. I mean, this is, this is sort of what, how Barber became who he became these little lessons. And that beautiful letter that he wrote to his mother. I'm sorry, mama. Don't make me go and play football. Yeah. But but with Sidney Homer, um, I think that certainly biographer Barbara Heyman spent a lot of time mining those letters and emphasizes the way that Sidney Homer always emphasized authenticity. And authenticity is a loaded term. In Barber's case, since he wrote, again, that stuffy word, more pure music, besides his dramatic works, you know, his, his numbered, or not, not numbered, because he didn't need to write more than one. But the essays? So, no, his... His um, authenticity, what I'm getting at there, is how do you write sad music without being terribly sad? Oh, well, there's a great Cocteau quotation yeah. that you, you, you cannot write sad music with tears in your eyes. Mm. Very French mm. and, and exquisitely so because the adagio for strings began, as we famously know, as a counterpoint exercise for Scalero, was it? Or was Scalero there already? Um, for for he was, whomever it was. Sure. And, and in fact, there was some disappointment in Scalero, too. But he also wrote a letter, letter to Sidney Homer from the lake um, mm. in Europe, uh, where he was vacationing with Minotti. And he was in the throes of, you know, a new relationship. And so he was filled with joy when he wrote that section, the second movement of the quartet. And his letter to Sidney Homer says... I think I've written a knockout. And you can look at the original letter and there's three <laughs> lines underneath it, an exclamation point. So and you yes. look at And look at Beethoven's, you know, the Heiligenstadt Testament letter was written and some of his most joyous music was composed uh, when he was at his lowest ebb. So why do I want to believe that you have to be sad to write sad music? Because authenticity is important. Well, it's a better story. You're essentially, essentially, Paul, you're an opera composer. You you want people to 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 be what they're writing, but that's not what we do. What do, what do you say then to somebody who's the most drawn to the kinds of music that go to that dark place? It certainly seems to be the music that sticks the most. The, we think of, I mean, even when you take things that are liturgical in nature, like Bach's Mass, you know, people really get deadly attentive when they listen to these deeply melancholic pieces there is uh, there is a an amazing ability that music has to just create a space into which we may move as listeners and when uh, we are filled with grief and need a safe place in the platonic cave sense in, in which to contemplate the shadow that we see on the wall, our mortality, the, the horror of it in the Conradian sense. Music, we know the music will end 
and we'll get to step out of that space. We know that while that music is playing, nobody's going to ask you to feel anything else. And I believe that music's ability to facilitate transformation at those times is what makes a so-called pure piece like Adagio for strings. Because counterpoint is a beautiful thing. It's an abstraction. It's a, it's a pure abstractification, if that's a word, of the process of creating music. When you are able, as Bach does in his most beautifully contrapuntal moments, as, as, and I'm going to say something wildly unpopular and people are going to say, oh, you're nuts. As David Diamond was able to do for a few years with his command of the web of great counterpoint, not all, all of his career, but music can facilitate that. It can create a space, not just for us to, to weep and to carry on and have our own little emotions, but it actually can perform the same transformative role that for many people the mass has in church. The, the greatest opera ever written is the libretto for the mass. Not Lenny's mass, but any mass, but the mass that is, 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 is celebrated by in so many different ways in so many different cultures. The activity of regret, fear, praise, that's why opera is what it is, coming to terms with the unknown, and then walking out into the daylight and moving on. Yesterday was the passing of Robert Orth, one of America's great baritones, the creator of over two dozen meaningful baritone roles for all of America's major American opera composers. One of the kindest, gentlest, strongest, smartest, best musicians I've ever known. He died yesterday after a three-year struggle with cancer. There was no music. I didn't want to hear any music. It was also the six-year anniversary of my brother's death of alcoholism. So I got to think about these things a lot yesterday. And music, I wanted to create some music. But yesterday wasn't the day. I was enthralled. But I, when it is time for me to write to create a space into which someone else can move to have a day like yesterday. I know where to go. And that's our gift. And that's why we are meaningful members of society. You said something at the very beginning of our conversation that I found very interesting. I hope that it was while the tape was running. It was that, that uh, artists can, can become swept up in the social activism of the time, and they can forget that their job really is to confront the really deep, ongoing universals. Absolutely. A music critic can be nasty and can be clever, and they can talk about the performance rather than the piece. And that's great. That's great for daily press. But that review will not age well. Ten years later, it's just going to be annoying. Same with music. There's music for use on a short-term basis, and then there are those works that are evergreen. And those are the works like, the, the for better or worse, a work like the Adagio for Strings for Mr. Barber, I'm sure he looked at that and said, I nailed it. Yes, three underlines. And then to have that moment and to have his extraordinary track record and not, and have to deal with having gotten it right is... Uh, and then to, to be unable to, to get through the interval to the second act. I wish that he had had the late works. I know we all do. Anyway, I've, I've, I've already spoken too long, but that was an important question, and I think that that's the core of our talk. Thank you. Oh, I'd love to pick up some details, though, because uh, sure. it's, it's a great resource um, in 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 Ned Worm's later years to mm. understand a little bit more about what he was, about who he was. That includes his comments on Barber. I mean, he uh, has, he has several memoirs, but his most recent one, um, it sounds actually a little, um, uh, it's gossipy if I may. Of course. But he, it's, it's a, it's a charming personality between the lines. 
Um, so, would you like me to comment on oh, Red Worm commenting on Sam Barber stuff like that? Well, I can <laughs> because, I, because I have, I, I have to preface it by saying that while it was frank and honest about Sam Barber's sort of patrician personality, it also seemed to have strains of regret too that he wishes that he had said things to Sam. That's I'm glad you said that. Um, I I studied with Ned Roram from 1982 to 1985, or 81 to 84, I don't know, something like that. And then I worked for him as his copyist for five or six years. And then we were colleagues and friends. Uh, I was close to James Holmes, his partner, and James died in my arms, which is important. And... <clears throat> The reason that Ned called me to ask me to perform that function as a, an acquaintance was because he trusted me to do the right thing. I appreciate that. And I owed it to him. He is the one who accepted me to Curtis and plucked me out of Wisconsin and took me at Curtis as a student. And suddenly I was not, I wasn't even in AAA ball. And suddenly I was in the show. So I owed him that. And when, when Jim died, we were square. And then I think both of us felt as though then we were going to have a relationship. Now, Ned is 93. And the things that he says about Samuel Barber are, are rather more wise than the things he said 25, 35 years ago. Ned, unfortunately fabulous writer that he was also used his writing as a professional cudgel to carve out a space for himself to frighten critics to and to um demoralize and uh, and put aside the competition and i think for many years uh he was jealous and justifiably so when you're in mid career and there's somebody else getting getting the love then then you're jealous why what's so what am i chop liver and that's a completely understandable so it's it, i read that too and it was beautiful to see ned sort of be wistful in other words i wish i'd been a nicer guy and whenever you hear uh, an artist say that on the one hand you can say well you weren't Suck it up. And on the other hand, you could say, well, you are a human being after all. How about that? Neither of which are very nice readings. But, the, but they add to the historical record. They do. And Ned, Ned is an absolutely Ishmael-like historian. You can't trust anything Ned says. But it's beautifully said, and, and it might be true. And if it isn't true, it should be true, as far as Ned is concerned. And that's why the book, The Last Diary, is called Lies, because he himself understood the cat and mouse better than anyone I've ever known, the cat and mouse nature of truth with a small t and truth with a capital T. And that when he was writing his prose, uh, he was the ultimate unreliable Ishmaelian character. And he was just being honest about his personal dishonesty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and very and very aware of his place and fighting for his place in the so-called canon. But it kind of mm -hmm. leaves me with a topic that, again, is sort of designed to deconstruct, you know, because <laughs> it is a cliche to ask it, but it's sort of inevitable and, and certainly interesting to ask somebody who fits this definition. So we, we grapple with this idea of the identity of the American composer. Mm. Um, it could be an irrelevant phrase. Um, we could mark it by when Aaron Copland, once a modernist composer, started writing charming folk tunes. Um, it could be about inventing a new nationalist language that perpetuates the national pride or something like that. Or is this all just bullshit? I mean, what, what, what is an American composer? It's, well, I, you know, the, the joke that, that most of my colleagues use is, is uh, that the or the narrative that we're pursuing is that the internet has made it all a lot harder because now nobody actually hears the piece that you posted about on the internet. Um, I just had a premiere the other night and it could have been horrible, 
But if I had put on Facebook that it was a great success and posted a couple of pictures of me with a happy conductor and smiling musicians, everybody in the business is going to say, ah, oh, man, Darren had another success. I wish he would just stop. Or I'm taking up room. And most of us are struggling just to take up room. I think that Facebook is not a very useful thing for artists, but it's great marketing with a capital M. And composers have always, professional composers have always been adept at marketing themselves because it's part of the job. And when critics decide to tell composers a few little lessons about how to market themselves, it's particularly disagreeable because we happen to leaven the fact that we're into marketing with the fact that we create things of value. Marketing is valueless. Marketing has no value whatsoever. So yes, it's all with a capital B. It's bullshit. There is only music. And as Liszt pointed out, music's power is that it rises above and beyond language. And marketing is, a, is about not the thing, as Wallace Stevens said, not the thi thing, ideas about the thing, not the thing itself. Music speaks to the lizard brain. If I tell you the Ned's old story, if 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 uh, WC had called La Mer La Strada, would it have been about a street instead of the ocean? Music is in fact pure, and every time we superimpose a narrative, if I say this is about uh, this composition, which is slow and in a minor key, is about the drowning of the child of close friends. Now, what am I going to do about? as an audience member. That's marketing. That's not composition. And so you have a lot of responsibility as a composer to behave yourself because you can do a lot of damage and you can do a lot of damage to the people you love just as diarists. See, I'm trying to pull it back to Ned because that's how we got into this mess. Um, Ned did a lot of damage to his personal relationships uh, by saying the things that he did. And we can talk about the French tradition of uh, diarizing and how we can say nasty things at five o'clock about somebody in the newspaper and at seven o'clock have dinner with them and laugh about it. But I, I don't know, 25 years ago, uh, a friend, a colleague of mine was really annoying me and uh, because he was being very pretentious and pompous. And so I wrote a letter to the Times and I thought I'd take him out to dinner, we'd laugh about it and then you know all would be well. But for years, People told me, Darren, this is America is not that culture. You can't be Virgil Thompson, who used to give a bad review to somebody in the Herald and then have them to dinner and laugh. No, no, this is not. We don't live in that culture, and there is no American music. There's only music that lands and music that doesn't. And that, I mean, you 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 create a sort of complication for um, also dealing with something that I've thought about. I mean, when I was casting about for how to launch off. The portrait of Samuel Barber, what I found was something that hadn't been widely circulated when Lenny Bernstein sort of expressed in a pre-concert um, tribute to Barber, a, a, what sounded like an almost an admiration for Barber's platonic qualities of writing this so-called pure music that transcended things like location, if we say America, mm -hmm. versus old Europe and the traditions of Western civilization. Um, also that maybe Bernstein, we know him to be sort of somebody who um, felt um, dogged by the, 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 his identity between serious concert music and the Broadway stage. So, oh, um, you know, I mean, I think that everybody who, who, when Leonard Bernstein wrote West Side Story, he had small children. And I think that, that it, it might have also been in his head that he could really use a hit. These kids have to go to college. Yeah, and it, you really take us back to your pragmatic um, explanation of what it is to be a composer, and I just really enjoy the ability to have <laughs> conversations with composers and to, to mine that material, to just gain a better understanding and share it with people. You just have to write, you have to finish pieces. Yeah. And yeah. The, what, what, my, what the people I look up to in our business do is they work hard and they finish pieces. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to like their music and I don't have to like them but they get my respect. They've earned it. All honor is due to people who, who have a good work ethic. As, as uh, someone once, once advised me when I was just starting out, 
a good boy does everything right uh, and get and, and and gets what they want out of life by doing everything right and expecting the world to reward them. And a good man takes what he needs from the world. And the difference is that a good man doesn't hurt anybody while he's doing it. On the contrary, if this man, and I'm not saying man, boy, I'm, I'm trying to be gender nonspecific, but this is more, for, for me, a man of my generation and age, it's more efficient for me to speak this way. So anybody who would rather speak in a different way, I apologize uh, for, for, for being on some level offensive. But if you want to be uh, a, good, a good adult uh, person, lift up the people around you. And use your art as a way to lift up the people around you. And if you are dedicated to that, to the finding of the keys, to the process of the finding of the keys, everyone around you will be lifted up. But if it's just simple self-actuation, you're just a jerk. You're just a guy who likes to write music more than he likes to have friends. Okay, then go write music. Well, I was a witness to a, a great uh, new work that happened this week at the Wintergreen Music Festival, and it was The Passion of Jekyll and Hyde. And uh, if things go as we hoped, uh, there will be a link in the caption to this where you'll be able to perhaps watch this because I had the pleasure of capturing it and experiencing it. And it's just amazing what you pulled off because it's a very long work accompanying the entire length of this film that you just seem to pull off as a as a side project, if you will. But it, it just it's a it's a, a rich, mere bag of shells. It, it is a it is a great, <laughs> great piece of music and I'm just looking forward to diving you, into it. And uh, what do you have coming up? Are you working on major works or I am. Uh, I uh I I just finished uh an opera called Nine Ten for six people in an Italian restaurant the night before the Twin Towers fell. They're in Little Italy. Uh, and I'll stage that at the Studebaker Theater in Chicago uh, next winter in April. Uh, and uh, then working on a, a 75 minute song cycle for six voices and piano four hands for Lyric Fest in Philadelphia and the Brooklyn Art Song Society in, in New York, which is a kind of a summation of 45 years of songwriting, sort of my evidence of things not seen. So we'll, we'll see. It's a, it's a big year. But mainly I'm trying to not to destroy my children. And you can read more about uh, his children and his family and his story and his memoir in Duet with the Past. Also a link in the caption to that book, which is available everywhere, including um, certain online uh, places. So thank you again, Darren. <laughs> thank you, Paul. For the conversation. That Much was appreciated. Fun. Thank you.